Hey everyone, so I found that there'd been some degree of interest in uh, pure economic loss and I presume there were some people out there who wanted to learn a bit more about what pure economic loss means and how you can recover economic loss or pure economic loss specifically. So with that in mind, here's uh, this week's video. So, beginning with Spartan Steel and Martin and Co, the general rule in tort is that pure economic loss is not recoverable. And pure economic loss essentially means a loss of money without damage, a purely economic uh, harm. So, in many cases, it'll simply be a loss of profits rather than a loss in value consequent on damage. So, for instance, uh, imagine a apartment block. So structural damage isn't pure economic loss, even though it will cause the value of the apartment block to fall because there's actual physical harm going on, but harm that's not actually affecting the property directly, it only affects its value, would be a pure economic loss if it fell. So to explain it a bit further, here are the facts of Spartan Steel. So the defendants, that's Martin and Co, were digging outside the claimant's smelting factory and through negligence, they accidentally severed the power supply, which interrupted the smelting process. Spartan Steel sued successfully on the grounds that Martin and Co had been negligent and caused their power to go out. However, there was an appeal on the, excuse me, calculation of the damages and what could be recovered by Spartan Steel. They'd claimed both for metals that they were in the process of smelting, that because the power went off they couldn't finish smelting and which had to be written off, as well as lost profits that they could have made had their factory been able to function during the time the power was off. Which is why the court distinguished between the two. The metal that had been damaged because it was in the process of being smelted was recoverable because the loss wasn't purely economic. They'd actually lost part of their property because part of it had been melted down and part of it hadn't. There'd been actual property damage. And so they could claim for the damage that had been done to the metals but the lost profits were purely economic loss and since this was taught negligence is a taught it was not recoverable because as a as a general rule is pure economic loss is not recoverable in tort to contrast this you have Hedeburn and Heller 
a house of wards at orbiter orbiter dictor or orbiter dictum is a phrase used to convey that it wasn't the reasoning behind the case it was something that a judge who is obviously a legal professional one of the biggest and most important legal professionals especially because this was the house of lords which at the time was the highest court in the land and it's now been replaced by the supreme court in case you didn't know so these were the most learned legal professionals and the most influential of all judges saying as an aside that a misstatement that was made negligently that caused economic loss could lead to liability even if it was purely economic loss which of course makes a difference as opposed to other torts rather than a negligent misstatement but of course this was made at orbiter so it wouldn't bind other courts it would just be persuasive because the facts of the case were Hedley Byrne had a large order from a banking client of Heller who were a bank and so Hedley Byrne asked Heller for a report on whether they were credit worthy or not which Heller did but in the header disclaimed liability for any losses attributable to the report essentially so by disclaiming liability they got themselves out of the liability which is why rather than it being the ratio decidendi the factor behind a decision it was just an aside an opinion given as a by the way and in contrast to the previous case you have smith and eric s bush the facts were pretty much the same there was a negligent misstatement by a surveyor um, there was an exclusion clause which tried to exclude liability for negligence but because this was a residential property purchase the court were I should say court I mean courts the courts were a lot more reluctant to allow that exclusion clause to stand and as a result they held that it wouldn't pass the reasonableness test under the unfair contract terms act 1977 meaning it was rendered useless and their liability was no longer excluded and they were liable for a negligent misstatement so what kind of losses can be recovered in tort well the premier case is the wagon mound number one they said that the damage of a kind that is foreseeable can be recovered to the full extent of that damage even if the extent of the damage isn't itself foreseeable so for instance the wagon mound is a very unusual and out there case a ship the wagon mound hence why it was called the wagon mound uh, i'm not sure if anyone else is aware of this but in cases that involve ships 
it's not at all uncommon for the party's names to be substituted for the name of the ship. Which I always found a bit weird. Maybe some of the uh, lawyers or legal professionals understand why this happens, but not really me. But a ship named the Wagon Mound leaked oil because a um, a knob hadn't been turned. And essentially all that needed was that valve to be turned and it wouldn't have leaked any oil at all. It really was that basic a mistake. And the oil leaked out. Cotton debris actually got into the oil spill and then some welding works which took place nearby ignited the oil and the fire got well and truly out of control because of a mixture of oil and cotton debris. And some boats and the wharf that was adjacent were destroyed in the fire. Now, that series of events, I think it's fair to say, is hugely unforeseeable. But it is foreseeable that if a ship leaks its oil, a fire might break out. So, fire damage could be recovered to its full extent, even though the actual extent wasn't reasonably foreseeable because of just how spectacularly unlikely everything was. Kapara Industries and Dickman was an attempt to try and stem the tide of imposition of duties and it was a case about negligent misstatement and the key takeaway is that the duty of care a statement maker has when making their statement is not going to extend indefinitely to anyone and everyone who can possibly access or read or hear that statement. So in this case, Kapara had purchased shares in a company whose accounts had been audited by Dickman. As it turned out, although the accounts stated that the company was profiting quite healthily, they were in fact operating at a loss and Kapara stood to lose quite a lot of money and therefore sued Dickman for negligent misstatement, arguing that had Dickman not audited the reports negligently, certifying that the company was profitable, they wouldn't have invested and wouldn't have stood to lose a great deal of money. The court took a different view, arguing exactly what I've said before, that the duty of care for negligent statements can't extend forever and ever. Dickman didn't know Kapara existed, and an auditor's report is not designed to be used for investors or whether to take part in any offers for shares. It's not a tool for investment in itself. That would be something that you'd expect from a prospectus rather than an auditor's report. And therefore, the court felt that there wasn't sufficient proximity for the duty of care to be applicable in this case. And Dickman essentially couldn't expect someone like Caparo to rely on their auditor's report 
in deciding whether to purchase shares, and therefore shouldn't be held liable for the losses Caparo suffered. Caparo therefore set up a three-part test for whether is there a duty in cases in which there is no precedent to fall back on. Firstly, the harm that is suffered must be reasonably foreseeable. Secondly, there's a relationship of proximity between the two parties. And if no duty has been recognised in such a circumstance before, would it be fair, just and reasonable for a duty of care to be imposed? That third part is public policy. They don't want the duty to be extended to anyone and everyone. There's got to be limits or else everyone will be suing everyone in I know everyone parodies America as being a land where everyone sues each other, but that is here what the court was trying to avoid becoming a possibility in British law by setting a, a bar on any novel claims being made by imposing a fair, just and reasonable test. The reasonably foreseeable and relationship of proximity are just parts of general tort law about usually negligence. Negligence is, as far as torts go, one of the most uh, wide-ranging, shall I say. But what about victims who are particularly sensitive to the harm? Well, there's a, a rule called the eggshell skull rule. The eggshell skull rule is a rule about a victim that must be taken as you find them. And it's uh, named so because the idea is if you punch someone in the face and they fall down and it turns out that they have a particularly soft skull, an eggshell skull, which will break easily. You can't get out of liability by saying that they only were hurt because they had a soft skull. It's irrelevant. You caused the harm and they're only in that position because of you. You have to take the victim as you find them. Sure, the average person wouldn't have been so badly hurt, but you can't blame the victim for being so sensitive to harm. To illustrate it further, here are two cases, Smith and Leechbrain and Page and Smith, not related in any way, shape or form. Smith just really is that common a last name. So in Leech, the victim had suffered a burn on his lip because of the defendant's negligence. As it turns out, he actually had precancerous cells in his lip and the burn that he had suffered activated or triggered these precancerous cells to develop into cancer. And three years later, the victim sadly did pass away from cancer, brought on by the burn. And the High Court said it was foreseeable that a victim could be burned in the circumstances. It was a factory to do with uh, obviously melting down material, so burns are quite obviously foreseeable. And all that mattered was that the burn had caused his death, meaning the defendant had to accept liability for his death. 
even though all he had foreseen was that he would get burned. And Paige, Paige was a far more interesting case. Essentially, the victim suffered from ME, but he was beginning to recover. But he was then in a car accident, which, although he was physically fine, it triggered his ME again, and he suffered psychiatric harm, which prevented him from working. And although it can't really be said that the negligent driver defendant could have foreseen that psychiatric harm would ensue, obviously people who are in very bad car crashes can suffer psychiatric damage and emotional damage. That, I think, isn't unusual or completely unacceptable to say. I think it's quite obvious and I think most people would agree with that. But the fact that he was unusually sensitive to suffering psychiatric harm since it wasn't a particularly bad car accident wasn't relevant. The defendant had been negligent and because of their negligence the victim had suffered some harm and they had to accept that. So what about contracts? Well, the reason I started out by saying in tort is because the situation in contract is different. If the two parties have a contract, then they obviously have some degree of a relationship, probably a business relationship. So the whole proximate relationship and are they proximate to each other can essentially be discarded because if they weren't proximate, there wouldn't be a contract. And if there weren't a contract, then a contractual claim would obviously be bad. So it's an, essentially a completely redundant question to ask. So it's never asked. Okay, maybe it might be asked in extraordinary circumstances. I'm not going to go that far, but I can't foresee any off the top of my head. So what about pure economic loss in contract? Well, contracts are used in business and business contracts are designed to generate profit. So, of course, pure economic loss can be recoverable in contractual principles. Which, of course, means that in the previous cases, that tort was only relied upon because they were struggling to find anything other than a tortious duty. They didn't have a contract. If they had a contract, they probably would have claimed under it. And all the questions about trying to wriggle out and away from the pure economic loss to try and reclaim as much as I could would have been irrelevant because if you have a contract you can claim for pure economic loss. So what are the rules for recovery of damages for a breach of contract? Well in Haddy and Baxendale it was considered that there were two main situations which give rise to liability to make good a loss arising from a breach of contract you must compensate a loss that arises naturally from your breach of contract, and you must compensate any loss that can reasonably be said to have been in the contemplation of you, and of course the other party, when the contract was made. Now that sounds quite abstract, so here are the facts, and hopefully these will make it a bit clearer. So the claimant operated a mill 
and a crankshaft had broken in the mill. And the defendants were hired to deliver a replacement, but they were late in delivery by seven days. The claimant had been unable to operate the mill in the meantime and tried to claim for the profits they could have made in the seven days they were without a crankshaft, but were unable to do so. The defendant, however, argued that they didn't know that the crankshaft was that pivotal to their operation. They didn't know that the mill was going to be closed, and they didn't know how desperate for a crankshaft a claimant was, and therefore they shouldn't reasonably be held liable for the lost profits. Because they had no reason to believe that failure to deliver on the exact date would cause a loss of profits, and the court decided to side with the defendants. They felt that a lost profit isn't arising naturally from the breach, nor was it reasonably considered to have been in a contemplation because the information the claimants had given to the defendant didn't indicate that they would not be able to operate the mill if the crankshaft wasn't delivered on time. And additionally, the chief judge was actually able to come up with a number of circumstances in which a mill could operate without a crankshaft. He's a very clever guy, I'm inclined to say. So with that in mind, he said it can't be said to have arose naturally from the breach because it's possible that, it, that a mill could be without a crankshaft but still be able to carry on working and generate profit. So lost profits weren't a loss that would arise naturally from a failure to deliver on time. And as a very interesting case, here's Monarch Steamship Co. Limited and Calzam Olia Fabrica. So you had a shipment of soya beans being taken from Japan to Sweden, which was delayed because there was boiler trouble on the cargo ship. Now the charter of the ship required that a seaworthy vessel be provided. So the fact that there was boiler trouble, which prevented it sailing, meant that the defendant was actually in breach of their duty to provide a seaworthy vessel. So we already have a breach of contract. Now, whilst the delay was ongoing, the Second World War broke out and the ship was forced to unload its cargo of soya beans in Glasgow and sail elsewhere, meaning the claimant had to provide another means of sending the soya beans from Glasgow, where they now were, to Sweden. And, as, and that meant they had to pay for alternative transport and they lost money they could otherwise have made. Well, what did the court say? They said, that in 1939, when this agreement was come up with, was um, created, the outbreak of a world war was actually foreseeable. I mean, in 1939, it did obviously look like, even without the benefit of hindsight, I do think there is a very good argument that you could see war was on the brink of breaking out whether you wanted it to or not. And they also said it was reasonably foreseeable that delays in the transport when war was a very real possibility could mean that the ship would need to be 
diverted because a lot of um, civilian vessels do get um, requisitioned during wartime to be used in the war effort. As a result, the cost of finding alternative shipping for the cargo was recoverable. How about Victoria Laundry, Windsor Limited, and Newman Industries? It was a very similar case to Hadley and Baxendale. The claimants had bought a boiler for their laundry and dyeing business. And, and this is a very important part, they specified that they needed it for immediate use in their business and a defendant was made aware of the nature of the business and therefore why the boiler was needed as soon as possible. But the delay in delivery meant it wasn't actually available when it should have been, causing a loss of profits the claimants could have made, including a very lucrative government contract for the dyeing of military uniforms. Now, Unlike in Haddon Baxendale, the court held that the lost profits were recoverable because the principles had said that it must either be something that flows naturally from the breach or it be something that was in their contemplation. And the claimants had specified that they needed it straight away or they would lose money because they could not perform their business and they would lose out on profits. So the lost profits for the period in which delivery had been delayed was recoverable, unlike in Hadley. But they did not mention the government contract to the defendants, meaning that contract could not be accounted for when assessing damages because it couldn't have been in their contemplation when they formed the contract because the defendants had never been made aware that they were in the running for a government contract for dying military uniforms. And here's the final slide. What about speculative loss? A financial loss that's based on speculation and therefore it could have generated a profit, but it just equally could generate a loss. Can you recover if you make a loss when you could have had just as equal a chance of profiting from the circumstances. Well, I'll begin with Chaplin and Hicks. The claimant had been one of 50 finalists in a beauty contest. Of those 50, 12 would be selected for employment after an interview. The claimant, Chaplin, wasn't invited to the interview of the final 50 until it was too late for them to actually attend. And she sued Hicks for loss of opportunity to gain employment. The court felt that her right to damages should be upheld. There is no requirement to show she would have been selected for employment. She could have been, but because of the defendant failing to inform her of the interview until it was too late for her actually to attend, she'd been denied the possibility of being employed and therefore she was entitled to be compensated for the loss of an opportunity, even if it was just as possible that she could have been one of the 38 who weren't selected. And for Zharnikov Limited and Kufos, as I mentioned before, in ship cases they do sometimes name it after the ship. 
and here is the name of the ship, the Heron 2. There was a contract for carrying sugar which was delayed by nine days. The market price of sugar had fallen in those nine days because another cargo ship had arrived carrying sugar, meaning obviously with an increase in supply, the demand fell and therefore the price fell. The claimant therefore claimed the difference between the market price of sugar when it should have arrived and the market price when it actually arrived. In other words, they're claiming for lost profit under the limb of Hadley and Baxendale. And the court held that a second limb, as it involved reasonably contemplated losses, could make a lost profit recoverable, since men of business, and of course women as well, would know that market fluctuation and fluctuating prices are just part of business. It would obviously be within the reasonable contemplation of businessmen that a delay in delivery could mean that prices have changed and that losses are made when a profit could have been made if they'd been delivered on time and profits could be made when a loss would have been made if they'd been delivered on time. That is the nature of business. So losses could be recovered. As an additional, could the defendant have attempted a an account for profit on the ground that they had it been otherwise and they by delaying had changed a loss into a profit for the claimant well i have seen precedent for such a case it related to a charter ship i can't remember the case name off the top of my head but the principle was that yes, you can, if your breach allows the other party to profit, which they wouldn't have been able to do had you not been breached, you can seek an account of that profit. Since otherwise they would be double compensated since they could sue you for their original loss to render their loss a uh, new troll or net zero and then profit because of the breach the facts of the case if anyone wants to look it up was that a charter for a ship was cancelled early and in order to try and mitigate their loss since they couldn't find another uh, business to charter they actually sold the ship because they couldn't find anyone to hire it and they thought it was um, only going to cause them loss by being idle. So they sold it now. And then later on, the prices that they would have been able to sell the ship for fell significantly. So that if the breaching party hadn't actually been in breach and they'd returned it on the agreed date, at which point the claimant would probably have sold it again. They would actually have made significantly less money. So the in that case, it was actually the defendant who was the non-breaching party, weirdly, 
this does happen very weird but they essentially made a profit because the other party had been in breached had been in breach sorry weird as it may sound but that meant that there could be liability to pay over some of the profit to the breaching party for giving them the opportunity to make a profit bizarre but that's how business works sometimes it just doesn't make sense well hopefully that was useful or educational and hopefully you enjoyed it i do try and make these as interesting as i can but unless you're a absolute law fanatic i do appreciate that it's probably not going to be the most interesting thing to listen to in the world nonetheless i hope you enjoyed this i've been friend in law and i'll see you next week